And family, I will invite you to turn to the book of Titus together. A few more weeks, then we'll jump back into our study of the book of Isaiah. But right now, we're in the book of Titus, taking a break from Isaiah for the summer. And uh, we are in Titus, and our series is called The Gospel-Ordered Church. If you remember, it was young Pastor Titus left on the island of Crete by the Apostle Paul to put what remained into order, verse 5 of chapter 1, put what remained into order in all the churches. So our scripture lesson is in chapter 2 today, verses 1 through 10. Chapter 2 of Titus, verses 1 through 10, reading from the ESV. Hear the word of the Lord. Titus 2, 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, and that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity dignity and sound speech that, not, that cannot be condemned so that an opportunity may, may be put so that an opponent excuse me may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us verse 9 bond servants ought to be submissive to their own masters in everything they ought to be well pleasing not argumentative not pilfering but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our savior May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Chapter 1, Paul begins this letter with his credentials and the authority that he has. He is a, a slave of God. He's been appointed as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been vested with the authority to speak to Christ's people on Christ's behalf. Very important in today's text. And after greeting, Paul tells Titus the importance of having leaders, qualified, biblical, plurality of elders, leaders in the church, pastors, elders in the church. He gives them a character traits, a list of them in chapter 1. And then in chapter 1, verse 9, he tells them what one of their main functions are, the importance of one of the things they should do. Chapter 1, verse 9, he, the elder, the pastor, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught to cling, to be devoted to, to, to rely upon, to be faithful to the Word of God, not altering, not watering it down, not, not removing it from its importance. Why should we do that, Paul? So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to confront and rebuke false teachers who contradict the gospel got to teach and rebuke. As I said two weeks ago, sound doctrine, that's the word healthy doctrine, would include the entire counsel of God, but I do believe because of what Paul is all about, especially in Titus, that the sound doctrine he's, he's honing in on, what's in the forefront of his mind, is the centrality of the gospel. The, the truth that we are saved by Christ alone, by grace alone, and through faith alone. That is, grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. 
the gospel, the knowledge of the truth, chapter 1, verse 1, which accords, which, which leads to godliness. We'll see that next week in clarity, how, how it is the gospel in our lives that transforms us and leads us to live a life pleasing to the Lord. Paul tells Titus why sound doctrine is so important. He jumps right into these false teachers. Pastor Ricky did a great job speaking about the false Cretans, the teachers who, as Scripture says, I'm not saying this, this is what Paul said, they are lazy, evil liars, showing themselves to be insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. And in particular, he points out the circumcision party, the Jewish people of that day, who believed that you had to have faith, but you had to add to your faith works of righteousness, works of the law, moral rightness. Let's not take anything out on them. There are a lot of people running around today that think you need to add to your faith to be made right with God. Anything, anything, adding anything to achieve your salvation, to somehow make you right with God, loved and accepted by God, received by God, according to Paul who wrote wrote the book of Galatians, is a damned gospel, a damnable, a cursable gospel. So what is Titus to do with these false teachers? who are disrupting whole families, verse 11. Look at verse 13, chapter 1. He is to rebuke them. Paul just told him in verse 9, elders need to rebuke, to teach true doctrine and to rebuke false teachers. And then Paul says in verse 13, do it. Rebuke them sharply so that they may be healthy, they may be sound in the faith. And we get into chapter 2, Paul turns and speaks directly to Titus, his, his partner, his true child in the common faith, on things that he must do as well, not just rebuke, verse 13, but to teach. But as for you, chapter 2, verse 1, teach what accords to sound doctrine. The word what accords is different than chapter 1, verse 1. This word means what is suitable, what is proper, what is fitting. So Paul is taking this mentor, this young man that he has discipled, and he tells him in verse 9 of chapter 1, tell the elders to do their job, to hold firm to the word, to instruct and rebuke. And by the way, Titus, you need to do that as well to those false teachers in Crete and those who claim to know God. Look at verse 10, 16 of chapter 1. They, they claim to know God by their actions. They deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. But you, emphatic, you teach imperative. You, you, are, you are to do something completely different. And he's emphasizing the need for Titus to step up and to teach. And to, to not only rebuke, but to teach. In very contrasting ways from the false teachers. So his job is to silence those who are teaching falsely, and he is to teach healthy doctrine. And this way, as Titus is teaching and rebuking, he's leading himself and the community, the church, to to a spiritual, emotional, healthy life characterized by good deeds. We'll see that as well. Gospel centrality, healthy spiritual understanding of the gospel will lead to good deeds, not the other way around. Very important. Again, we'll see that today and more so next week. Now, although I, I read, the, I read the, the, uh, the verses earlier, and although the word discipleship is not found in, these, in, that, in that text, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that's really the thrust of what we're going to talk about today is discipleship, right? 
One very important word, we talk about it here. Jesus gives us the command in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples. What does that look like? What is healthy doctrine? What is the truth of the gospel look like when it's worked out in our lives as we live life together? Paul will speak of three groups this morning. People inside the community, the church, the churches of Crete. He will speak to the men. He will speak to the women. And he will speak to the bond servants. That's our outline. Let me go over there. A word of exhortation to the men, to the women, and to the bond servants. Now, let me, let, me just, let me just say two things before we jump into the text that I think need to be said. The exhortation that Paul is going to give to the church, to the God's people, is just for that. God's people. Those who've been born again, those who've been renewed by the Spirit, saved by the gospel. And what Paul is going to say are words, although uh, there's a sense in which they are for every man, every woman that God created, they are going to be rejected unless you've been transformed by the gospel and how the gospel is transforming our lives slowly but surely into the original design that God created us to be. That's before men and women sinned and then sin entered the world. So as the gospel transforms us, as we now are reconciled to our God, God is working in our lives, bringing us really, we could say, back to true humanity. So this is the word of God to the people of God. Secondly, I've said this before, I believe, but let me say it again. If there's ever a time for the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to stand on the authority and the sufficiency and the infallibility of the word of God, it is now. As the world around us is redefining everything, redefining marriage, redefining uh, uh, gender, dissolving any uh, differences between men and women, we need to be sure with absolute resolute, if I can use that, on the word of God as the ultimate and final source of authority for both faith and practice. Young folks, 10, 15, 20 years Where is your authority going to lie? It must be in the written word of God. It must be. We are facing challenges. And as I said in the past as well, we have to be unashamed and unapologetic as we stand on the word of God. But, it's the caveat, but we must find a way to stand firm on the word, and we're going to look at some controversial verses today, we'll stand firm on the word of God, yet love people, yet care for people, yet serve people, yet live on mission with people, right? We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't uh, um, run from culture, right? We don't, we don't escape culture. We don't engage culture, but we, what do we do? We engage the culture for the cause of the gospel, so there's got to be a way we could stand firmly on the Word of God and what the Word of God teaches and yet still love people and still live on mission. There's got to be a way. There is a way. Jesus said in John 17, as he prays to the Father, I've given them, that's his people, that's the children of God, that's the believers of Christ, I've given them your Word. They have the Word. The world hates them, just like they hate me. I'm not of the world, you're not of the world, they're not of the world. I did not ask you, Father, to take them out of the world. That's escaping from the world. But that you would keep them from the evil one, protect them. And then he says, sanctify them, set them apart in the truth. 
The truth, your word is truth. Then he says, as you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. So here, as we gather together as followers of Christ here at King's Chapel, we are to stand on the word, but let's also stand on the word, but let's also engage and love people both. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you, okay? So I think that needs to be said, and we need to keep mind on that. As we look at this instruction that the apostle in authority of Christ instructs Titus on living life as a Christ follower. First, a word of exhortation to the men. Guys, here we go. Older men, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older men are to be respected not simply because of their age, but because of their character, right? The term here, older men, could mean the pastor elder. There's a term that's actually, but it also could mean, just in general, older men. And that's what it means now. Now, what constitutes an old man and a younger man, I'm not really sure. 30 years ago, I would have said somebody in their 50s old. Now, it's a whole different ball game. I heard someone once say, you know, when the candles cost more than the cake, you, you might be approaching old age, you know. It probably refers to men who are older, who have raised families, that have sent their families out, who are also raising families, right? And he said these older men need to be characterized by two things, two major things, respectability and maturity. So let's look at them. Respectability, sober-minded. Now, sober-minded could mean sober, not drunk. But there's a sense in that word that has to do with um, uh, good judgment, um, sound mind, clarity of mind. Now, if you're drunk all the time, you're not going to have sound judgment. I get that. But it's saying you got to have a older gentlemen, older men, or mature men are to have good judgments, clarity. They need to be dignified. There's a sense in which uh, that word talks about demeanor, um, an attitude, a, a mannerism that, that commands respect and honor from others. Not, not someone who's a clown all the time, not someone who's frivolous or, or uh, you know, vulgar, speaks out of bounds on a regular basis. No, he's supposed to be dignified, sober-minded, honor with respect, self-control. He's keeping his passions in check. An older man is to keep his passions in check, self-disciplined. MacArthur says, older men should have the discernment, discretion, and judgment that comes from walking with God for many years. They control their physical passions and they reject worldly standards and resist worldly attractions, end quote. Sometimes older men, nobody here, can be irritable. That was my wife laughing. Cynical. Looking to argue with people all the time. Paul says, no, no, you know what? Sober-minded, dignified, and controlled. That should characterize older men. And now look at his maturity. They are to be sound in faith. Again, healthy, sound in faith. Mature men, gospel men, are to be sound in their, in their confidence and trust in the Lord. It's rooted in this, in this regular, continual, long-term walk with God, the re- reliance upon the Holy Spirit, right? Immerse one's life in the Holy Scriptures. He has time to read, time to study. This man not only knows what he believes and why he believes, but he knows whom he believes. Sound in faith. Sound or healthy in love. 
How easy is it to experience hardship and brokenness year after year, year after year, rebellion and difficulties, and then become somewhat calloused? Let's be honest. Cold, cynical. Not when it comes to love. Sound in love, agape is that word, you know it. Self-sacrificial love for others. Here's the deal, guys. The older we live, are we growing in love? Are we growing in love? The longer we walk, the longer we should be growing in love. Love is the characteristic, the chief characteristic of Christ's followers, and it should grow as we mature. John 13 says, Jesus said to his disciples, by this All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Dr. Aiken writes, we are to love God supremely, fellow believers genuinely, and lost humanity fervently. Sound in faith, sound in love. Look what he says, sound in steadfastness. As men, as we grow older, as we live life longer, we ought to grow in the assurance of that of, of what our eternal inheritance is, been, is going to be given to us, what is, what is waiting for us. The hope that is within us should grow as we mature. We should be more steadfast, more patient. We should demonstrate this hope that we have as we continually grow and mature in the confidence we put in our God. We know when all is said and done, what's going to happen in the end. We could stand firm when we're tested. We could stand firm through hardship, knowing it is purposeful. We don't give up under pressure. We've been down this road before. And one of the ways that you can know, guys, you know that you're growing in maturity as we age. And let's be honest, just because your number goes up every year doesn't mean we're growing in maturity. But one of the things we can know when maturing as we age uh, is that the things of this world become less important less we, we chase them less and we now we're not talking about relationships talking about things things become less important god becomes more important and and we are recognizing that this is not our world now i'm not saying that all christians should think that way but you know when you're let's be honest guys when you're 25 26 27 some of you are you think i got another 150 years to go but when you're older you're thinking yeah i really don't have that much left to go here Sound and steadfastness. Doesn't cling to the world. Doesn't throw in the towel. Doesn't lose heart. Doesn't drop out of the race. Rather, he runs the race with endurance, Hebrews tells us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, right? He's the author and finisher of our faith. Now, that's what older men. Now, drop down your eyes to verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men. Okay? Urge the younger men also, look, to be self-controlled. Same word. And the clear implication, of, clear implication of that is that the older men and Titus are to instruct and disciple in such a way that they come alongside the younger men to encourage them and to live a life as an example to them. Likewise, urge, urge is the word, believe it or not, parakleho means to call alongside, to come alongside someone, to call them. So they are, they are to come alongside, older men come alongside, Titus come alongside, Speak to them, be with them, be for them, help them, speak courageously to them, and encourage them in their walk. Younger men need to be 
discipled by strong, healthy role models provided by older men. I praise God. I could name three men right off the top of my head that have discipled me. One of them is still a very close friend of mine who's a pastor, is a mentor. We need older men. Dr. Peter Call wrote this, guys. You ready? Hold on to your hats. What a real man needs is another man to talk to and reinforce his maleness and help him to be a better husband. Without such a friend, men risk reverting to a mother-child relationship with their spouse. Ouch. Men become helpless and insecure and increasingly revert to the classic overgrown kid who expects to be mothered, end quote. Young men, single, married, need the encouragement, exhortation, instruction from older men. So let me ask you young guys. I have a seven-year-old. What when your son, 9, 10, 12, looks at you and says, Dad, Papa, that's my name. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a dad? What does it mean to be a husband, a father? What, what does that mean? What would you say? You know, I'm not interested in the constant changing cultural ideas, beliefs, and opinions that are out there. You know, what is a man, what is his role, what is his life look like? Now, some of these, these roles, these gender roles, will be expressed according to some cultural norms, but the basic ideas, beliefs, and roles that men and women are to live out are not found in the newspaper. They're found in the written word of God. I say that without shame. God, the creator of man and woman, had revealed to us in his word what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman. It's not an exhaustive list, but Paul says to these young men to, number one, be self-controlled. Again, to, exhort, to, to, uh, to be exhorted to be in control of their lives, their thoughts, and their passions. Important for young men. Proverbs 4, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. Young men need to engage in the battle against their mind. To take control of their thought life, otherwise they're going to get sucked in to the sexual perversion and indulgent lifestyle, and not only in our day, but in the days of Crete. And we, we read a lot about self-control, even the women, we see but with the men, self-control. Let me just, just a short little bunny trail. I ain't got too much time today, but a short bunny trail. When the Bible talks, well, excuse me, not the Bible, when in ancient days, whether it's Stoicism, whether it is uh, Plato, they teach that self-control, taking dominion over your own life of your own passions is something that you do yourself. And it is actually uh, the essence, uh, I think it was Freud who said, essence of civilized life. Not for us. For Christians, self-control, for believers, self-control begins with humility, actually. Humility. We humbly acknowledge that we need to continually guard against evil motives, sinful nature that we are struggling with. We take mastery over our bodies when we finally come to the place and recognize we can't do it. Self-control lies not within us. It relies within God. Drop your eyes down to verse 11. I can't wait for next week. How does one remain and how does one keep oneself walking and growing and, and especially being, uh, um, having self-control? Verse 11, it is the grace of God. 
that has appeared, bringing salvation, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright lives. That's how we have self-control. Show yourself. Self-control, verse 7, show yourself in all respects to a model of good works. Typos, Greek, means type. Titus, you are to, to, be a, to be a type, a mold, a pattern on which you can impress on others and bear the likeness of you as you live your life with good works. You heard the expression, more is caught than taught. That's true. He tells Titus, live your life in such a way, be a role model of self-control and good works. Opposite of what the false teacher is supposed to do, but you, Titus, you show the young men in all respects, be that model of good deeds. Paul said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's what older men need to say to younger men, and younger men need to come alongside and watch and learn and live in such a way that they're being discipled. They're showing young men, they're showing young men when and how to live a life of good deeds that flow from the gospel. Why would Titus say that? Because left to themselves, they'll be home video games, right? 14 hours a day. Yeah, no, no. Keep your eyes on the goal. There's some things that are more important than just earthly things. Keep your mind in eternity and do good to others. And in your teaching, verse 7, show integrity, dignity. We live this model out for these men. Show integrity, dignity, sound speech. Teach healthy doctrine. Show it with integrity. Integrity can mean two, one of two things, but maybe even both. When he says do it with integrity, he means do it with seriousness. You're teaching from the word. You're teaching the scriptures. You're leading and you're developing and you're mentoring and you're discipling. It's important. Do it with integrity. But it also could mean integrity of doctrine. In other words, what Paul is continually saying, know what you believe. In other words, when you're giving your lesson, when you're giving your sermon, make sure you're teaching. Because he uses the word dignity and sound speech, and it's kind of an outward expression and inward expression. Do it with reverence and soundness of speech. Be passionate, be convincing, have a well-thought-out message, but do it seriously and do it with reverence. That's what I want you to do. As you teach these men, as you live as a model and example to them, do these things so that, look what he says, speech that cannot be condemned. Paul says to Titus, listen, as you're, as, you're teaching, as you're teaching the truth, may, may it be clear, may you present the gospel in truth, may it be evidented by your life and your teaching that you, Titus, have not been infected by the false teachers with the lies and distortions of the gospel. Teach with clarity, teach with integrity, teach with dignity and soundness of speech must be sound, so that, verse 8, an opponent may be put to shame, uh, yeah, verse 8b, that opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Now, if you want to underline that word, so that, it's a Greek conjunction. There's actually four of them. What, what that means is that Paul is saying to, to Titus, teach these things, live this way, so that the purpose and the goal is for this. Okay, you got that? So that the purpose is in order that for this. 
In chapter, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, 5, 8, and 10, we see these conjunctions. Now here, what Paul is saying is, Titus, as you teach, as you live an example for young men who are living out the gospel, it will silence, it will silence and put to shame those who oppose you. Okay? So what does a man look like? Clarity of mind, good judgment. A demeanor, an attitude, commanding respect, passions under control, confident in the Lord, trusting in God, walking daily, leaning on the Spirit, immersed in the Scriptures, marked by love, stands firm when tested, doesn't give up under adversity, doesn't lose heart, doesn't drop out of the race, continues to do good. And with all seriousness, he teaches and mentors and shares the good news of the gospel. He developed relationships with other men, showing them the gospel as a, a mutual growing together as men serve together, love together, serve the gospel together, live on mission together, and grow together in the truth of the gospel as men together. Sign up for the men's retreat as a shameless plug. We're starting a new men's ministry, or I shouldn't say new, but restarting. That's a great focus, guys. But ladies, you have your word too. Mom, what does it mean to be a woman? Mom, what does it mean to be a wife? Mom, what does it mean to be a mother? What would you say? Go back to verse 3. Older women, likewise, just as I have spoken to the men, I'm speaking out to the ladies, the older ladies, are to be reverent in behavior. Now, we know what age a woman becomes an older woman. 250. <laughs> no one's there yet. But if you ever get there, hear the word of the Apostle Paul by the authority of Christ to the older women. They're to be reverent. In behavior. Just like when men need to be um, uh, men of faith, older women need to be, he says, are called to have an, uh, this inner sacred devotion expressing itself, wow, outwardly, right, in their behavior. Be reverent in behavior. What's interesting about this word reverence here in this text is Paul takes a word, actually combines two words, heron meaning temple and, and, and prepus meaning proper. Temple and proper, a temple and that which is fitting. And it was an attitude and, and a, uh, a behavior seen in the priest or the priestesses that would serve in the temple. Paul is saying to older, mature ladies to remember, you're serving the living God. And that should be demonstrated in your life as you live near and practice the presence of God. Your heart is close to God. And maybe as, as I'm trying to think through how to bring application. Maybe, maybe as, as, older, as women get older, maybe they feel like there's not much they can offer as much as they could before. Paul says, listen, let your life be marked by devotion to God and reflect the character of someone who loves the Lord. Give yourself to the service and to the love of God. Remember, you serve the living God. It's an encouragement to older women. Next, don't be slanders. Diabolos, uh, it's, a, it's a term we use for the devil. Uh, he's, a, he's a slanderer. Paul says older women should not succumb to someone who can't control their tongues, lying and accusations and spreading gossip. 
Older women, don't do that. I'm, I, you know, again, may, maybe, well we'll, well, we'll get there. Don't be slanderers. Nor, look what he says, doulas, bondage, or slaves to much wine. Now, maybe Paul knows of the Cretan women like to drink on a daily, regular basis, morning, noon, and night. I'm not sure. But he says, look, if, you're, if your mouth is out of control and your alcohol intake is out of control, you would, you're going to damage the credibility of the life-changing power of the gospel. Now, the kids are out of the house. We're all alone. Less to do, possibly. Some aren't. Some are. Less familial responsibilities, maybe less demanding, and there may be a sense of uselessness, a sense of loneliness, maybe a self-pity. But Paul would say, no, 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 all the women. Let your godly behavior shine. Be worthy of respect. Watch what you, what you say. Serve the Lord. Worship him. Be devoted to him. Don't be a slave to wine. And then you will, look, ladies, you'll play a very important, essential role in the lives of the young women in the church. They are to teach what is good. Verse, end of verse 3. Better translation, good teachers. Paul says to the older women, listen, I'm instructing you and I'm giving you the important educative responsibility within the context of home to teach what is good. Not, not only teach what is properly to be taught, but to live in such a way that your character shines in your devotion to God. And as they love their God, as they love their people, as they're training, uh, 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 as they're growing in maturity, they're training, and they're going to be mentoring and serving young women as well. Look at verse 4. And so, there's that Greek conjunctive, in order. Reverent, not slanders, not addicted, teach what is good, and so, in order to train the young women to love their husbands and children. Actually, the word love goes before both words there. So to love their husband and to love their children. Love for the married woman is preeminent in her marriage. She should love her husband and love her children. Love, sacrifice, and serve her family. The young wives are to train. In other words, to regular discipline. Maybe, I, I don't know, maybe Paul knew of some women that were doing it and stopped, did it, stopped doing it, stopped loving their families. Or maybe there were women that were doing it, maybe they were losing heart. And Paul says, no, the older women come alongside these young women and train them. The word train means self-control, moderate, sober-minded, keeping one's senses, giving good advice. And here he says, older women, come alongside these young women uh, to give advice, to encourage them. To love husbands, love their wives. To be self-controlled. To be pure and upright. To do what's right. To be morally upright in their character. Next, you'll love this. Working at home. Wait a minute. The phrase actually means to be busy at home. To be working at home. And the word kind, look at it says, workers at home being kind, being useful. So it's not just working at home, it's being kind. You know, uh, ladies, you can speak for yourself, but I'm sure the day in and day out uh, uh, gets a little bit irritable. And they say, you know what, remember to be kind in your house. Now, Paul is not saying, and make this clear, Paul is not saying that women must work at home only. That's not what it says. And there is no way or reason that a woman should work outside the house. That's not what he's saying. 
John Stott, I think, does a great job. He says this. It would not be legitimate to base on this word either a stay-at-home stereotype for all women or a prohibition of wives being also professional women. What is rather affirmed is that if a woman accepts the vocation of marriage and has a husband and children, she will love and not neglect them, end quote. To be workers at home doesn't mean, ladies, you, you shouldn't just be lazy to be overdoing it or, or, or underdoing it or going outside or the, the temptation to be over busy somewhere else. Young women, I want to be careful I think this is what the scriptures teach. This is a call by the Apostle Paul through Titus, through the older women, to the younger women as a call to reject the cultural lie that says you are not valuable, worthy, or useful until you have some sort of career. Our culture defines people by what they do especially careers and women without career who are staying home with serving their family may feel a bit like they don't have a place. But the gospel defines us, not the culture. A woman who served the Lord and loved the Lord and recognized their, their God-given appointment to love their children, to love their wives, find their identity in the gospel. You belong to the God of creation. You are Christ own possession you've been redeemed and purified you have given a a, a purpose from almighty god to accomplish that is who you are that's where your dignity that's where your value that's where your worth comes in you are christ's treasured possession and that should liberate us liberate you to serve the lord with gladness can't use any woman who makes career status or financial advantage a higher priority in her life than the welfare of her marriage, children, or home, transgress scripture as well as the signals of a heart sensitive to God's spirit, end quote. As I read that statement, it was just a matter of heart and as a matter of perspective, but then I thought, isn't that true for us guys? If you sacrifice your children and your wife on the altar of success, if you use them and abuse them in order for you to gain some sort of notorious, you know, some sort of uh, outward expression of some wealth, I would say to you, brother, you're in sin. We can't neglect our family either as the highest priority over our workplace. Here, Paul says to the ladies, be workers at home. Serve God by serving your family. Have that as a priority. Don't try to run out there and get something that the world wants to offer you. It's not saying you can't work. Go work. And some of you single ladies, that's, what I, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking married women with children and husbands are to serve God by serving their families. If that's not enough, Paul goes on. And submissive to their own husbands. There's a countercultural message. Notice what it doesn't say. Oh, excuse me. Notice what it says. Not doesn't say. Notice what it says. Submissive to their own husbands. Not somebody else's husband. Not men in general. I don't have time to get into all the nuance of this. We got it somewhere in the archives. I can send you the message. Ephesians says, wives, submit your husband as unto the Lord. That means is the ultimate authority of a wife, of a mom, of a woman is Christ. The husband doesn't replace it. 
ultimate submission is to Christ. And the context in Ephesians chapter 5 is how marriage, you guys know the text, is to reflect the strong union and intimate bondage, excuse me, intimate relationship that echoes between Christ and his bride. The gospel, the marriage home, the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave his life up for it. Wives are to submit and to honor their husbands as the church submits to Christ. That analogy is what Paul uses to talk about the home, and he points to the gospel. It means that his wife should respect and submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ. That's how a relationship should be. A truly respectful submission is rendered voluntarily from the heart. Married women do not lose their identity as a woman, but fulfills her calling as a wife. She doesn't suppress her intellect, her talents, her gifts. Rather, she uses all the God-given gifts and abilities that, that God has given her to serve her family, to come alongside her husband as a spiritual leader of the home. And together, they serve the Lord. It's not that women have less value, worth, or how somehow men are superior. We know we're not. It's a matter of roles and function. God created them male and female. Make man in our image, Genesis 1. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Adam placed in the garden, told to keep it, to work it. Eve created as his helpmate. Not go get me my slippers. That's not what it means. It means a completer. It means that Adam could not do what he was commanded to do by God. He needed a helper together to serve and to work and to, to uh, complement him in fulfilling the God-given task of multiplying and taking dominion over the earth as God brought Eve to come alongside Adam to do what Adam could not do by himself. The word helper is the, is the Greek word parakaleo again, and, and it's used of the Holy Spirit. God, it's certainly not lesser in value. Um, Kevin DeYoung wrote a book, Men and Women in the Church, I recommend it to you. Um, And I just want to make a quote from his book. He said, Adam was created outside of the garden and charged with cultivating it and protecting it. A protection under which the woman was meant to flourish. Guys, are your women, are your wives flourishing in your leadership? Eve was created within the garden, suggesting a special relationship to the inner world of the garden. The creation mandate, filling the earth and subduing it, applies to both sexes, but asymmetrically. They're different, not identical. The man, endowed with greater biological strength, is fitted especially for tilling the soil and taming the garden, while the woman, possessing within her the capacity to cultivate new life, is fitted especially for filling the earth and tending the communal aspects of the garden, end quote. We're different. Complementarian, as they call it. Hand in hand, side by side, with different roles. The scriptures are clear. Let me, let me just really be clear. Men are called, husbands are called and to, to take up and to recognize their divine calling to take primary responsibility for a Christ-like love, a Christ-like sacrifice, a Christ-like servant leadership to protect to love, to provide, to care, and to cherish his wife. To make sure that her spiritual, emotional, and physical needs are provided. Take a bullet. Serve, love, care. 
Not as a tyrant, but strength to serve. Matthew Henry in his uh, famous words. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam. Not made out of his head to rule over him, nor of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arms to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved, end quote. So yes, there's an innate equality, but there are different roles. God created them male and female. And the context is men love, serve, sacrifice, Your wife needs to know that she's cherished and loved and provided and protected. Ladies, it is your job from the heart to willingly, submissive, ultimately to Christ, your husband, as the two of you seek to serve and to love the Lord. Verse 5, in order that, the purpose of that the word of God may not be reviled. The young women's gospel behavior is so significant that it has an impact on unbelievers toward the word of God. The word reviled means blasphemy, to slander, to speak irreverently. John Stott says, Christian marriages and Christian homes, which exhibit a combination of sexual equality and complementarity, beautifully command the gospel, commend the gospel. Those which fall short of this ideal bring the gospel into dispute. End quote. Paul is saying, Live a gospel life, not simply or only because it won't bring blasphemy against you, but when we're not living, guys as well, when our marriages are not reflecting the gospel, growing in the gospel, we are, at that point, causing God's word to be reviled. All right, let's wrap this up with the word of exhortation quickly to the bond servants. Now, I don't have time. We're not going to get into all the issues of slavery. Bond servant means slaves, y'all. That's what it means. Slavery is very different in then as it was in the 18th and 19th century in here in America. But Scripture regulates it in places and never, ever ordains it or gives it some sort of divine institution. It is what it is. Some, slaveries back, some slaves back then, it wasn't a racial thing either. All kinds of people were in slavery for all kinds of reasons back then. Some were highly educated. Some were treated very well. Some were treated very poorly. Some were definitely abused and, 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 and uh, you know, miserably treated. Yet one thing that was common in slavery in that day was that they were under the authority and control of someone else. No matter how you were treated. Make no mistake, slaves were the material possessions of their masters who had complete authority over them. Okay? And many people take this passage of scriptures, last verse, verse 9 and 10, and talk about the workplace, which we will in a minute. But I, I think, and, and we should, and I think there's principles that apply. But let's not lose the radical, radical gospel truth that Paul was talking to the slaves in that congregation. It's, I think it's a little bit easier for us who work for someone to br- apply these principles because we go home. So we lose some of that reality and gospel application and gospel uh, 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 applica- radical gospel applications. But f- that being said, Titus says to the bondservant to do two things, two major things in their work and in their character. So let's look at that quickly. To be submissive to their own masters in everything. 
Colossians 3 says the same thing about bond servants. They are to submit. You're, you're, you're to submit to your employer. You are to submit to, to those who are over you in, in a submissive way. In fact, in Colossians chapter 3, he says the reason you should do that is fear of the Lord and the fact that you are working all and full-hearted work, not for man, but for God. Obviously, when Paul says in everything, he's not talking about that which was illegal or, or totally against the clear commands of God. But all other things, the Bible says that we are to submit to our employer and serve them as if we are seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in his full authority behind the one that we are submitting to. We are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. We are to, to be conscientious and polite and respectful. We are to strive for, to have a well-pleasing spirit and attitude. It's the hearts, the issue. Anybody has a superior over them, they're automatically in submission to them just by accepting the job. Just by going to work, you're automatically in submission. That's not the issue. The issue is where's your heart? It's not just getting the job done. It is is serving and pleasing. Look what it says. Well-pleasing, not argumentative. Not obstinate. Not questioning everything. Refusing to do what you're told. What Christ follows are to what? Submit. To, 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 to be well-pleasing. Not to be argumentative. And not to steal. That's what pilfering means. Petty larceny, thievery, you shouldn't steal from your employee, whether it's time or, or things that come off the desk, right? We should not steal. We should be ones who are all good faith. In other words, we should be, Christians should be the people who are the most trusted employee. That's what, that's what Paul's saying. And here we get to that verse again. So that, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, so that. Earlier he said, so that. Young men, young women, so that your opponents will not be put to shame, so that they will have nothing evil to say about you. Now he's saying, listen, gospel servants who serve well will adorn. Will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. What an eternal perspective. Submission faithfulness, character, self-control, serving your, your, your wife, loving your wife, wife's submission to a family, integrity, all that I think could be wrapped up in this reality that we are to adorn. Adorn is, is a word that's used to uh, display. Uh, they would take jewels out and, 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 and just lay it out to see the beauty, the outward adornment of these, these wonderful jewels. The gospel, he says, living a life that brings honor and glory to God, living in such a way that God created us to live, living in such a way that we're loving our wives, we're submitting to our husband, we're showing forth the gospel. We are, we are, we are people who are uh, um, loving and caring and, and, and uh, serving God. It brings glory to him. It reveals that he's our greatest treasure, that we are trusting ultimately in him. It's not just do what God says or do what the Bible says. That's true, but it brings glory to God. It says, God, you're my greatest treasure. I'm resting in trusting in you alone. When all things fail, you are the, 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 the God of my heart. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Family, do you see this chapter? Do you see that God is calling us to live in this way? Not simply because he commands us to, and yes, he does, but it brings him glory, and therefore it should bring us what? Joy. 
God gets the glory, we get the joy. As the band comes up, let me ask you, let me ask you this morning, there's a lot, a lot being said. A lot has been said. There's a lot of scripture truth in here. Where are you at? Where are you? What, what has God shown you today? What are areas in your life you need to say, you know what? I need an older man to mentor me. I need a younger man to mentor me. Uh, mentor me. You know what? I need to be reverent. I need to recognize I'm an older woman, but you know what? I matter to God. I'm serving the Lord. Maybe I'm, I'm a younger woman and my attitude needs to change. I don't know. Whatever the Holy Spirit has directed you, has shown you, today's the day. Today's the day is to turn from that behavior and turn to God, to turn from your sin, to turn to Christ. That's what, the, that's what communion is all about. Communion is all about the work of Christ. Communion is all about the death of Christ. He died on the cross for our sins. He shed his blood as an atonement for our sins. He took our payment, our sin, the wrath we deserve upon himself, shed his blood, was buried in the tomb, three days later rose from the dead, victorious over sin, victorious over death. And he calls us, and he calls us to live in light of that. As I said in chapter 2, verse 11, is the grace of God. So it's the grace of God that's calling you to repent. The grace of God calling you to turn from your sins and turn to Christ. So we're going to take communion together. And we're going to pray. We're going to pray. We're going to ask God to forgive us, and then we're going to celebrate God's forgiveness. We're going to ask him to help us and strengthen us in our lives, in our homes, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our discipleship, so that we can show the world that we adorn the truth of God, our Savior. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. He broke it and he gave thanks. This is my body, he said. That's been broken for you. Then he took the cup. He took the cup. And said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Poured out in my blood. Drink. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you for the transforming power of the gospel. Thank you, Father, for each other. That you've given us a family. Where older men can, can, can instruct younger men. Older women can instruct younger women. Where, Lord, we can serve you well in our workplaces. Lord, we want to do everything not for a pat on the back or not try to earn our salvation because we can never do that. But we want to do it well so that you would see, be seen as our greatest treasure. That we worship you, we trust you, we rely upon you. We will rest in you, Lord. So, Father, forgive us of our sins. Wash us and cleanse us through the blood of Jesus. Lord, we will thank you and give you praise for all that you've done, all that you continue to do as your children seek you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.